turn in your Bibles to Psalm 42. I want to talk to you this morning about a subject that is sort of taboo among uh, Christians, and that is the subject of depression. I'm not talking about a bad day. I'm not talking about several dark days in a row. I'm talking about that unremitting dark despair and discouragement that goes on for weeks or months or even years that um, leaves you with a foggy mind and exhaustion and irritability and interrupted sleep and essentially uh, kind of robs your joy and makes a misery of your life. We don't like to talk about it as Christians because we don't think Christians should be depressed. We have this idea that when we come to Jesus, all of our troubles are going to vanish and uh, everything is going to become rosy and every day I'm going to have joy and happiness and uh, just kind of go through life with this big smile on my face. And, you know, the reality is that just isn't always true, is it? There are times when all of us have those dark days. Uh, there are times when you wake up and uh, whether the weather is foggy and gloomy like today or whether the sun is shining, it all looks gloomy. And uh, you just feel kind of off. And sometimes uh, those days last uh, more than a little while. Also, uh, periods of a kind of depression, although I'm not speaking here of clinical depression so much, but it's a component of grief. And grief we often associate with death, but grief does not only occur with death. Grief occurs with loss. It can be loss of a job. It can be loss of a career. It can be uh, loss of one's health. It can be loss of a body part because of an accident or something. There there are all kinds of things that can bring grief into our lives and and a kind of um, uh, moody longing for the way it used to be that leads to that uh, despondency is rather normal in the process of moving through and healing uh, in the course of grief. It's just a part of it. And yet, there is a kind of depression that grips the heart of even God's people and that seems to go on without relief and really brings us low. Uh, David is one of those people. And as we read Psalm 42, uh, you know, he asks the question, Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you disturbed within me? That's his experience. And if, if ever there were a man that uh, was honest in revealing his inner emotions, David is that person as he writes the Psalms. If he's dancing before the Lord with joy, it comes out. If he's sad and mourning, it comes out. If he's angry at his enemies, get them, God. It comes out. I mean, David just kind of lets you see what's going on inside of his heart. And when we look at David in Psalm 42, we see a picture of him in a time of despair. I'm going to come back to that in just a moment. But I just want to mention by way of a kind of extended introduction that many powerful servants of God have struggled with depression. 
You may not be aware of that. How many of you know who David Brainerd is? Ever heard of David Brainerd? A few of you? Okay. Uh, David Brainerd was uh, a missionary essentially to um, Native Americans uh, back in the days of Jonathan Edwards. In fact, he was frequently a guest in Jonathan Edwards' home. And at one point, he took one of uh, Jonathan Edwards' uh, young sons, about 11 years old or so, uh, with him into the frontier, uh, which wasn't very far in those days. I think it may have been Boston <laughs> or somewhere uh, to the west of them. But anyway, um, and went out uh, to evangelize uh, the Indians of that area. And David Brainerd was a powerful man of prayer, a powerful man of God, and he was an incredible evangelist. God used him mightily to reach many, many Native Americans with the good news of Jesus Christ. And uh, he, he just had a way about him and a humility about him uh, and, and an integrity that was respected and as a consequence, he was a powerful person. And yet, David Brainerd suffered long periods of dark de depression and despondency. Charles Spurgeon. All of you have heard of Spurgeon. Considered one of the greatest uh, preachers of England. Um, fantastic uh, Baptist Calvinist that... Uh, Proclaimed the gospel with uh, power and, and vigor and taught many, many young preachers uh, the scriptures and how to preach. Uh, he ran a school for preachers. He was considered one of the greatest speakers of his time. And yet, Charles Spurgeon suffered tremendously from long periods of despair and discouragement. C.S. Lewis, the writer, uh, not only of children's favorites, uh, but also of Christian literature, C.S. Lewis experienced dark times in his life that lasted for long periods. We're talking about David, but perhaps uh, you're not familiar with Jeremiah, uh, that weeping prophet who oftentimes... Uh, wondered within himself, how did I get in this mess? <laughs> God came to him and called him to preach when he was a young man, called him to be a prophet. And he uh, took up that mantle under the compulsion of the Lord. But you find him uh, later on as uh, Judah rejects his message and resists him. Uh, you find him in despair. And he says, I tried not to speak. <laughs> and when I closed my mouth, my bones were on fire. He said, I, I, I couldn't avoid preaching, but this preaching is a burden to me. And it weighs me down. And he wished that God had never laid that responsibility upon him. And yet, as he turned to the Lord, he found his hope and his deliverance. Uh, one of the things that I want you to be aware of this morning is that many of God's what we call choice servants, I don't know if that's a good term or not, but we use it, and you know what I mean. Many of God's choice servants have struggled with this kind of problem. They have suffered with depression and with periods of despair and, and with dark days that have lasted more than just two or three, but have gone on for weeks. And we are so reluctant to acknowledge that believers can have these kinds of difficulties. Uh, we hate to admit it. We feel like somehow we're a second-class Christian. And if you happen to be in the midst of one of those periods, you're rather convinced you're a second-class Christian. In fact, <clears throat> you may be wondering if you're a Christian at all. And you wonder if you have any connection with God. 
And as we read David in Psalm 42, we find that out. I've mentioned in my outline that there are, uh, by the way, I I noted, I skipped over this, but I noted that approximately 10% of the U.S. population at large uh, suffers from clinical or major depression. Or maybe it would be a good, good time to just pause for a moment and define clinical depression or major depression. A blue mood and a depressed affect, uh, just a dark day, is not clinical depression. Clinical depression has a specific criteria that defines it. It includes a cluster of symptoms, most of which are a daily experience that go on for more than two weeks without a break. So, in the first place, you you have some things right there. Last longer than two weeks, a cluster of symptoms, and they are present every day. It can include things like uh, insomnia or hypersomnia. Some people want to sleep all the time. Some people can't sleep at all. Some people go to bed and fall asleep and they wake up in a couple hours and can't go back to sleep. Some people toss and turn for hours before they can fall asleep. And so there are sleep disturbances. There are cognitive disturbances. Uh, mental blocking, uh, and I'm not talking about um, uh, that uh, noun problem that those of us in our sixth decade have occasionally. You know, the one where you're trying to think of... What's the name of that place, Carol? <laughs> yeah, that, that kind of thing. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about the kind of mental blocking that uh, you just can't string your thoughts together. Sentences, you interrupt yourself. You don't know how to finish what you started. Uh, You're constantly forgetting things. You're losing things all the time. Uh, Which makes me think of dropping things (laughs) as well. When we talk about fine motor control, some people are slow and sluggish. Uh, Some people are jittery and agitated. Most people have lost all interest in happy and uh, fulfilling things. There's nothing that excites them anymore. There's nothing that uh, they look forward to. Every day is the same kind of day as the day before. Um, They have that dark, depressed mood. And the list goes on. And if those clusters of symptoms last longer than two weeks and persist, uh, and by the way, it includes um, suicidal ideation, which is not the same as committing suicide, but it's frequent thoughts of death or wishing you were dead or wondering if you shouldn't just end it all. Um, sometimes that scares people to death to have those thoughts. They're not that uncommon. To have a thought like that doesn't mean you have a plan and you're going to carry through. Um, but we are most of the time ashamed and afraid to admit that a thought like that ever crosses our mind. What kind of a Christian would I be? If I just wish my life were over. And so we have those, those kinds of thinking in uh, major depression. And uh, if those go on for a period of time, they have the tendency to drain the life out of you. To where every day is just slogging through another day of existence. I've mentioned here there are three primary causes or types of major depression, and and I want us to understand these because sometimes people don't know why they ended up where they ended up. One of the 
common causes is physical exhaustion and or unremitting stress. Have you ever seen that uh, stress inventory, depression inventory, that has a list of major life events like uh, death of a spouse, uh, change of jobs, loss of job, being arrested, you know, those kinds of things. And, and you just go down that list, and if you get 300 points, basically it says you're in trouble. <laughs> you, you need to look at your life, and you need to take some action because you're in trouble. Well, stress that comes from outside of ourselves and begins to build up in our lives can wear us down to the point that it is difficult to, to get our head above water, as we say. And stress takes on a lot of different forms, and we're not always responsible for its causes. You know, if you lose your job because of downsizing, that's not your fault. But it profoundly affects you. And then people who lose their jobs often find themselves uh, dealing with financial problems. And that adds stress. And then they might face foreclosure, which compounds stress. They may have to return their car or sell their nice car and get a beater that just gets them from one place to the other and every time you turn around it's not working. And that compounds that stress. And then when that kind of stress builds up in the household, guess what happens in marriages? Then there's stress in the marriage because things are not uh, going on an even keel. It's amazing how many times in a marriage relationship difficulties and challenges that are not the fault of either party create all kinds of marital problems because you're both reacting to stress in a different way and you're getting in each other's way as a consequence. And so those kinds of things begin to compound. Sometimes just overworking, just physical exhaustion. If, if you work 80 hours a week, you're not going to do that for very long. And by the way, you don't have to work 80 hours a week where you punch the clock. If you just have responsibility that demands 80 or more hours a week of your concentrated physical attention, you're going to wear out. Um, it's quite honestly why many young mothers who have several preschool children struggle with depression. It's not because they're bad people or not good Christians. It's because they've got three little kids who do not give them a minute's break and you can't get any rest. And there's always something to do. And sometimes we have to just kind of step back and, and look at life. Not Can I say this okay? Not so spiritually. We, we need to step back and look at it just plainly. This is life and it's tough and it's not working well right now. And it's wearing me out. Many of us do not realize that when we exhaust ourselves like this, it causes an eventual depletion and exhaustion of neurotransmitters within the brain. Those are the little chemical packets between the nerve endings that are so crucial to make the circuits work. Do you know that your brain and your nervous system is one big electrical complex circuitry? And um, you have what are called synapses, where one nerve comes almost to the next one, but not quite. And those little neurotransmitters send the impulse across the gap. 
And without jumping that gap, the system doesn't work. And if you have exhausted yourself and depleted the neurotransmitters to the point that you're not making connections, you begin to exhibit the signs of clinical depression that have nothing to do with bad blows in life or with uh, perhaps chemical uh, chemical problems from birth. It has to do with sheer physical exhaustion without replenishment coupled with perhaps stress that is going on in your life and you're simply burning out. You know, God, we want to say that we're free from the law, and we are. And the one that we really like to be free of is the Sabbath. But the reality is, is that God gave us the law for our benefit. And when He said, six days you shall work and do all your labor... And on the seventh day, you shall rest. Don't do any work. Don't even collect wood for the cooking stove. Take a day off. Rest. Worship the Lord. Allow your body to rejuvenate. I've had some people say to me, well, yeah, but I can work 72 to 100 hours in six days. Well, you got to remember when that was written, it was a little hard to work after the sun went down. Sure, we can work till midnight or later because we've got lights and power. But they didn't. And God was basically saying, you've got six days to work. Do your work and then stop. And every seven years, You need to take a big break. And every 49 years, you need to take the whole year off and just party. (laughs) That's what the year of Jubilee is. Take the whole year off and party. Now, not the way we think of party, maybe. But relax. Don't plant. Don't harvest. Don't labor. Trust your God to provide. You need a break. And by the way, we're going to get all this land business and debt business straightened out that year. So that you can start over. Everybody needs a good clean start once in a while. So, physical exhaustion and stress often results in depression either because we truly can't help what's come upon us, or because we're not using the wisdom that God has given us to order our lives according to His priorities. And as a consequence, we're wearing out. Exogenous depression comes from outside of ourselves usually due to a major crisis or a trauma. Uh, Sometimes there are things that just knock you for a loop, and it takes a long time to recover, and you may spend a long period of that time in the doldrums. You know what the doldrums are, by the way? Um, When mariners were at sea in sailing vessels, and... For some reason, the wind died and the current stopped and they found themselves adrift in a sea with no current and no wind. Nothing was happening. And some crews starved in that period of time because they couldn't get the boat going again. There was no way to to move it anywhere. The doldrums are where you're just kind of floating without any purpose. And, and sometimes things come into your life 
totally unexpected, all of a sudden just decking you. And when you kind of wake up and shake the stars out of your eyes and come to attention, you're just sitting there like a lame duck. You don't have any sense of direction or purpose or meaning. And that can happen rather suddenly. Some people struggle with endogenous depression. That's something that comes from inside of you, and it often appears in life for no apparent reason. It probably reflects a true chemical imbalance. In other words, there are some people who struggle with depression that have no outward sign that suggests they should be depressed. No trauma, no exhaustion, no major stress. Life just suddenly lost its joy. And all of these symptoms begin to show up, and they don't know why they're there, because they can't point to anything that caused it. We live in a fallen world, and we have broken bodies. We're damaged goods. Do you all realize that? I mean, we really are. And that damage affects different people in different ways. Some are more susceptible to one thing than another. And some people are susceptible to chemical imbalances that are a part of their DNA that are a result of sin in the world. Okay, God didn't make us like this, but when sin entered the world and disease and death entered with it, we became damaged people. And that damage includes deficiencies that often occur within the brain that produce outward symptoms. I do not believe, and, and I've said this before, and it, it's created trouble for some people. In fact, over the years, I, I've had some people leave the church because of my position on dealing with depression. And they were stuck and, and, and couldn't deal with it. Uh, I mean, couldn't deal with my position. And I don't want to do that to you. I, I want you to know that if you're struggling with clinical depression this morning, um, you have a major empathizer in me. The reason is I've been there. Uh, in my teen years, I struggled with a depression that lasted about two years, and in my late 20s, I struggled with one that lasted about three years. I know this stuff. I'm not giving you theory today. I know it from the inside. I've fought the battle. I know, I know what's happening inside and how you feel and how you think and what's going on. So, so I want to say what, I, what I'm about to say lovingly and I want to say it very carefully. There are such things as chemical imbalances. But we do not have to succumb to the behavior that they give impulse to. In other words, to put it bluntly, I can wake up and find that the day looks gray and gloomy but I can get dressed by the grace of God and go to work and be decent and listen to other people patiently and carry out my pastoral responsibilities and do the things that I need to do because I depend on God to get them done no matter how I feel. Now, it took me at least 
If you start at the age of 10, it took me at least 20, 25 years to figure that out. So I, I don't want to rush any of you. <laughs> it, it doesn't come overnight. But the fact that chemical imbalances exist and predispose us to certain kinds of problems does not mean that we have to succumb to the behavior associated with it. One of the best examples I can think of is the research that has been done with alcoholism. Apparently, and I say apparently, but I'll give scientists the credit of doubt for it, apparently they have isolated a gene which predisposes certain individuals to be alcoholics. Does that mean that everyone who has the gene has to be an alcoholic? Uh, the interesting studies done with identical twins really prove the lie to that. But let me just take it from, a, first of all, a, a pragmatic point of view and then a spiritual point of view. Pragmatically, I have known people whose testimony is, and, and I actually heard someone give this testimony, my daily alcohol consumption consisted of a fifth of hard liquor and 25 cans, uh, 24 cans of beer every day. That's what I drank. And when God got a hold of my life, I completely quit. I had no side effects. I had no cravings. I had no interest in drinking ever again. I was done. Other believers have said, I was an alcoholic, or if they attend AA, they say, I am an alcoholic. I won't take up that debate this morning. But they say, I, I was an alcoholic, I was drunk every day, and God got a hold of me and He delivered me. I still can't be around alcohol, I love the smell of it. I love the taste, I have the cravings, but by the grace of God, I don't go there anymore. What's the difference? I wish someone would do a study on that. Because I think the difference is, the first person did not have the gene that predisposed them to alcoholic physical addiction. And the second person does have the gene. And as a consequence, they have, now that they've exposed themselves, they have a longing to have that kind of, I won't say stimulant because it's not, it's a depressant, but they want it. I think the same thing is true of clinical depression that is endogenous. Some people are wired that way. But they don't have to live in the pit. By the grace of God, they can walk in freedom. Even though they may have a lifelong battle against which they have to be continually on guard. Whereas other people have episodes that come from without, and once those have passed, they are able to be delivered from that, and, and they're not inclined to return. Quite frankly, just in, in the spirit of being honest with you, I think I suffer from endogenous depression, or at least I have that. I am inclined to be an Eeyore. That's, that's the way I'm wired. But God has given me insight 
by constantly going to Him and, and laying this problem out for Him, God has given me insight in dealing with that. So, when we look at Psalm 42, I want you to just listen to David's thoughts as he writes, As the deer pants for the water brook, so my soul pants for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and see His face? That's another way to translate appear before God. When shall I come and see His face? In other words, here is David, man after God's own heart, spiritual man, passionate man, sold out to God, does not feel God is not aware of God's presence. He's running from Absalom. This psalm does not say David wrote it, but as Charles Spurgeon put it, it is so David-like it's hard to deny it. And he apparently wrote it uh, as a, a, a masquille, a, an instruction or a special musical number for the sons of Korah or the Korah Chorale, as I put in your notes. Uh, they were a group that uh, apparently, uh, Worship Team B, where are you? <laughs> I told them they got to change their name. <laughs> but anyway, uh, the, the, the sons of Korah were, a, were like a chorale. And, and apparently David wrote this of his experience of running from Absalom. Do you remember Absalom had... Uh, David was back in the, in the uh, palace. He'd stopped mingling with the people. And Absalom was out in the gate making nice with everybody. And eventually, Absalom usurped the kingdom and chased David out of it. And here's David running from his own son who wants to kill him. Uh, it's a sad, tragic story. And David has left Jerusalem and he's heading up into the mountains, crossing Jordan and going up to Mount Hermon, up into the hill country, and uh, trying to get away from Absalom. This is the background. And and David says in the midst of this, I'm hungry for God. Where is He? Ever feel like that? Where are you, God? I don't feel you anymore. I'm so thirsty for you. I'm so hungry for you. And I can't find you. My tears have been my food day and night while they say to me all day long, this is the people around him, David, what happened to you? What did you do that God's so mad with you? Ever have anybody ask you that? And David's trying to think, I don't know what I did. And they say to me all day long, where is your God? He says, these things I remember and I pour out my soul within me. I used to go with the throng and lead them in procession to the house of God. David the king used to be leading the, the, the citizens on the way to the tabernacle to worship God on the Sabbath. That was his great delight. And he said, I had the voice of joy and thanksgiving, a multitude-keeping festival. But I don't feel that way now. And he asked this question, Why are you in despair, O my soul? And why have you become disturbed or disquieted or in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise Him for the help of His presence. And then David says, Oh my God, my soul was in despair within me. I remember you from the land of Jordan. In other words, he says, I'm looking back toward Jerusalem and I'm, I'm recalling those sweet times I had in your presence and in your house. I remember you from the peaks of Hermon and Mount Mizar. 
Deep calls to deep at the sound of your waterfalls and all your breakers and your waves have rolled over me. Every time David comes to a stream that's tumbling over the rocks and crashing down, he, he feels like those rocks below being beaten by the water. Rather than a thing of beauty, the waterfalls have become a reminder that he can't even come up for air. The Lord will command His loving kindness in the daytime. His song will be with me in the night. A prayer to the God of my life. I will say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? Why do I go mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? As a shattering of my bones, my adversaries revile me. While they say to me all day long, where is your God? David, where is your God? He's abandoned you. You're all alone. Why are you in despair, O my soul? And why have you become disturbed within me? Hope in God, for I shall yet praise Him, the help of my countenance and my God. How do we recover from depression? Well, first of all, sometimes we just need rest. Just need to take a vacation. Just get out of Dodge. Take a break. Clear your head. If you're not too far down in the pit, that may suffice. Go for walks. Don't take on an hour-long daily exercise program that exhausts you. Just take a walk. Notice that David is doing self-talk. Who's he having a conversation with here? Why are you in despair, my soul? There's two people in the room, <laughs> but there's only one person you can see. This is going on up here. David is talking to himself. That's not pathological, by the way. And as he talks to himself, he says, Hope in God, for I shall yet praise Him, the help of my countenance and my God. I don't know how else to say it. Give it time. I shall yet praise Him. There were times in my life, I mentioned in my late 20s, 30 years old, when I felt like I had gotten to the end of my rope and I had tied the proverbial knot and just my fingernails were hanging on with one hand. And any moment I would fall and be utterly destroyed. But hang on. Somehow, God will give you grace to hang on. And one day, you will praise Him in the sanctuary again. One day, you will come back. One day, the trial will end. David quotes Scripture to himself. He reminds himself of the truth of God's Word. Aaron Beck, who is not a Christian, he's actually an atheist, wrote a book called Cognitive Therapy of Depression. It's an interesting book. He says, listen to the tapes that are going through your mind. Do you know what I'm talking about? When you hear those... those uh, Words played over and over and over again in your mind. How worthless you are. How life is never going to work out again. How 
uh, you're stupid or you wouldn't have lost your job, on and on. You're ugly, uh, people don't like you, um, you know, whatever it is that you hear. Over and over and over again. Aaron Beck said, lay that out on the table, write it down, lay it out on the table and ask yourself, is it true? Is that statement true of me? Get somebody to help you if you need to. Is this true of me? Am I stupid? Chances are you're not. Or you wouldn't be writing it down and putting it out on the table and looking at it. And then write sentences that counter the lie with something that is truth. I made A's in math all through school and college. I made A's in computer science. Stupid people don't make A's like that. Find out what is true. And when that thought comes to your mind, remind yourself of truth. Counter the lie with truth. Aaron Beck was on to something. You know what I've discovered? I've discovered that every secular counselor that comes up with a workable therapy, that treatment can be traced back to Scripture. Because they discovered by accident the way God designed us. And all you have to do is take the tapes that are playing in your mind. I say all you have to do. It's, it's not easy to do anything when you're in the pit. But look for verses that directly expose the lie of Satan. You're worthless. If God is for us, who can be against us? He that spared not his own son, but delivered himself up for me. How shall he not also with him freely give me all things? I have loved you with an everlasting love. Put yourself in the sentence. Find the verse. Write it down. When you hear the accusation, you are worthless. Counter it with the truth. God values you. You are worth the death of His Son in His eyes. That's amazing. And then confront those false lies until they begin to weaken and eventually go away. It will happen. It will happen. You know, I I eventually learned that when I wake up in the morning and the day looks gloomy and black and I don't have any inspiration or hope that's a lie it's not true and that's the way it may look to me but that's not the way it is and God is still on the throne and he hasn't moved and he's living in me and he's with me and I I just have to go through that mental litany of truth to counter the lies rehearse the Scriptures to battle Satan's fiery darts. And then notice what David is doing in this psalm when he says, I will say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? May I say boldly, it doesn't matter what you say to God. He he can handle it. It just matters that you say something. Start talking to Him. Initiate the prayer. Have a conversation. God, where are You? I don't feel You. Lord, I'm in despair. Lord, my brain's not working. 
I remember one time in the darkest hours of my depression, and it wasn't hours, it was weeks, but anyway. And I went to breakfast. I met some people at breakfast at a place called Shoney's in Franklin, Tennessee, and they accepted checks in those days. <laughs> and so I uh, got to the register to pay my bill, and I pulled out my checkbook, and I could not remember what went on the signature line. I'm not kidding. I knew it was my name. I could not remember my name. And I got my wallet back out under the pretense of looking for something else so I could see my driver's license. Now, I knew who I was, but I could not call my name to mind to write it on a check. That's cognitive blocking, for sure. But you know, I've remembered who I was ever since. God won. I got the victory. I don't have to look at my driver's license. I got it in my pocket in case I do, but I, I don't have to. And you begin by talking to God. And He will meet you. I'm not saying it will happen overnight. But there is a way out. Notice what David says. Hope in God. For I will once again praise Him. This too will pass. And we need to tie a knot and hang on to that promise. There's so much more I could say. There's a lot of stuff I didn't even touch on. I don't have time this morning. But if you're struggling, don't feel like you can't talk to me. I've been there. And if I can help, I will. Because there's nothing more important than seeing God's deliverance in the land of despair. He is a good and gracious and loving God. And He will bring us out of the pit.